0: This Capital Ministries Bible study from President and Founder Ralph Drellinger is entitled, What Would Haggai Say to D.C. Office Holders? Our Preamble. As our country continues to struggle, the focus of solutions and reform efforts are almost exclusively centered on political remedies. COVID-19 and its economic impact, increasing social unrest, A Cold War with China and the reality of a nuclear Iran are no small threats, nor is our runaway national debt. America's challenges seem to be increasing exponentially. Are political solutions, policies and elections the total answer? Are they the ultimate way to fix these problems? Is this the way to properly diagnose, remedy and cure our increasingly complex national ailments? One need only peer for seconds into a tiny two-chapter Old Testament book, the book of Haggai, to catch an enormously different perspective and analysis, a heavenly, transcendent perspective, God's perspective, as to what is the real underlying problem. The book of Haggai more than suggests that it is a spiritual one. What follows is an overview of this small but very powerful Old Testament book, This is a book you need to master if you hold political office. Listen more, my friend. Introduction and Overview Israel had been a very strong nation under the rule of kings David and Solomon, but even during their reigns and increasingly afterward, the people stopped obeying God and consequently the nation suffered great decline. This should have come as no surprise to anyone, especially the Israelites given the if-and-then structure of the Abrahamic covenant found in Torah, Genesis 12 and 17, and fleshed out even more so in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If God's chosen people obeyed God, He would prosper them. If they disobeyed Him, He would chastise them. Cross-reference Joshua 1 and Psalm 1. Under the subsequent reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam, in fact, the nation split into two entities, Israel and Judah. Many times God had warned them to cease from idolatry or be disciplined, cross-reference Hebrews twelve five through 11 In that Judah, the book of Haggai is all about Judah, did not repent after years of God's patience, similar to Israel. He orchestrated pagan Babylon to be a surrogate of discipline and punishment. Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, had sacked Judah, destroyed Solomon's temple, and took her people into captivity. Seventy years later, Babylon was sacked by a new world ruler, Persia. Under King Cyrus of Persia, by God's design, the Jews were then permitted to return to their homeland and rebuild it. God, in His sovereignty and tough love, had orchestrated the sobering and humiliating conquest of his chosen people. He was at work through the pagan kings and their successors with the specific intent to wake up his people for his purposes. Author Not much is known about the prophet Haggai other than the five prophecies recorded in this small book bearing his name. Haggai is the 37th of the 39 Old Testament books and is named after the minor prophet Haggai. The name Haggai means festal one. Perhaps he was born on a feast day. A further insight and interest is Haggai 2 verse 3, which states, Who else is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? Signifying that perhaps Haggai was over 70 years old, the time of the beginning of the Babylonian Persian captivity, and had seen Solomon's temple before its destruction. The Old Testament book of Ezra mentions Haggai twice, cross-reference Ezra 5.1 and 6.14, in tandem with the prophet Zechariah, another minor prophet with an Old Testament book named after him. Zechariah follows Haggai in the Old Testament, it being the 38th book. In that the book of Haggai is only two chapters long, It is the second shortest book in the Old Testament after the one-chapter book of Obadiah. Whereas the book of Ezra provides an overall historical account of post-exilic Judah, Haggai provides a spiritual insight and accounting of the same time period. The book can be outlined around the five separate prophecies of Haggai. Haggai's five prophecies. Prophecy number one, chapter one, verses two through eleven. God's rebuke of the two leaders. Prophecy number two, chapter one, verse 13, God's reinforcement of the remnant. Prophecy number three, chapter two, verses one through nine, God's revelation to his people. Prophecy number four, chapter two, verses ten through nineteen, God's reminder of the past. And prophecy number five, chapter two, verses twenty through twenty three, God's reinstatement of the Davidic lineage. The Return of Judah After the people had been held in captivity for 70 years, the Jewish civil leader, Zerubbabel, led 50,000 of the Judeans in the first of three waves of returnees. Joshua, or Yeshua, as he is called Yeshua in the book of Ezra, was the accompanying priest and Haggai was the prophet. Later, Ezra, and then Nehemiah would return with more people from Persia. Think of the three, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, as representing a later collective of Moses, in that Moses brought God's people out of Egyptian captivity into the Promised Land, cross-reference the book of Exodus. These three did the same later in the life of Judah. Each of them faced the same post-exilic problems, to build, rebuild their capital city, to reinstitute Torah-based laws, to overcome foreign enemies, and to purify the people from idolatry. Ezra, per the book of Ezra, returns after the accounts here in Haggai only to learn to his deep dismay that Judah, after 70 years of punishment, had once again so quickly fallen into the same egregious sins. Soon after Zerubbabel and the 50,000 returned from Persia to Jerusalem, the local residents became upset with the Judeans' temple rebuilding efforts. The flack from the locals proved effective, and the return-from-exiled Judeans soon spiritualized the reason they had stopped rebuilding God's temple. Note Haggai in chapter 1, verse 2, wherein Haggai parrots there spiritualized procrastination and lack of courage. It reads, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Ironically, however, the people were very much about the business of building their own homes. The time had come for that. God was not pleased. It was now 16 years after their return, about 520 B.C., and herein God delivers the five prophecies via Haggai to once again disobedient Judah, reminding them that what was indeed presently happening in their lives was a result of their once again disobedience. But especially take note, holding leaders accountable. God's rebuke was not aimed at the 50,000 returnees. Rather, God's rebuke was specifically aimed at Judah's civic and spiritual leader. This important distinction appears in the opening verse, which reads, The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying. What follows in subsequent passages are numerous pronouns, you, the yous, related to just those two individuals. Again, Haggai's first admonitions are centered on these two individual leaders who name his name. Later, Haggai will widen his remarks to include all the remnant who return from captivity, but it is not until verse 12 of chapter 1 that they are included. God the Father, through his mouthpiece, the prophet Haggai, first addresses his follower Zerubbabel, the civil leader of Judah, stating that the reason Judah is not being blessed is because of his and Joshua's spiritual lethargy. Notice how God couches this in order to get their attention in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Haggai's rebuke can be similarly applied to every civil and spiritual leader today who names the name of Christ, who procrastinates or outright ignores fulfilling God's purposes. Upon their return from Persian captivity, Judah was making excuses as to why, as a nation, they could not devote more of their energies to God. Seemingly, Zerubbabel and Joshua were going along with these pretexts if not posturing them themselves. They supposedly, outwardly at least, journeyed to the nation's capital to reconstruct the temple. But in reality, they had lost their resolve and were now spending their time paneling their own homes and were lax about God's purposes. Being self-deceived, they now made spiritualized excuses, phony defenses, as they dragged their feet relative to communing with their God and achieving his purposes. Note Haggai's specific rebuke in chapter 1, verse 4 in this regard. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Because of their unfaithfulness to be about God's purposes, it was God himself who was orchestrating the withholding of national blessing. In chapter 1, verse 11, God states this very thing. I called for a drought. On the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. A sidebar. A profound play on words. It is interesting to note in the original Hebrew text the intentional play on words that God gives to Haggai. In Hebrew, the word desolate in verse 4 is Horeb. And the word drought in verse 11 is Horeb. God is instructing Haggai to use words that were very similar in order to unmistakably drive home his point. God wanted them to make the connection. The drought in the land was because of their desolation. Desolate to make bleakly, depressingly empty of his temple. Their bleak attention to his matters was resulting in God's bleak attention to their matters. God was the one behind the overall decline of the nation. Why? Because the national leaders, the civil and spiritual leaders, had become self-serving. The leaders of the nation started back from Persia with good motives, but the resistance to their dreams coupled with the affairs of everyday life began to crowd out their earnestness and original intent. After 16 years, they no longer had the time or desire to serve God's purposes. Their selfish pursuits had found more important things. They had not made it a priority to give attention to their personal, spiritual vitality. It follows that this book serves to not only vividly illustrate the violation of Matthew 6.33 in the New Testament, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, but also serves as a narrative paralleling the gist of God's message in the book of Ecclesiastes, that everything apart from the pursuit of God is all for naught, vanity. Insights from Sodom and Gomorrah verses post-exile Judah. As we have just seen, the scriptures indicate that God withheld His blessings of Judah, that is to say, He withheld national blessing, due to their leaders' personal spiritual lacks. This causal insight is very interesting. When compared to the cause of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19, God was ready to reduce the cities to ashes because the debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah was indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave, cross-reference 18:20. But prior to their destruction, note that Abraham inquires if God would sweep away the righteous with the wicked, verse 23 and begins to negotiate. He asks if God would spare the cities if 50 righteous people were found. God answers, I will spare the whole place on their accounts. Chapter 18, verse 26. Probably knowing there weren't that many, Abraham reduces the number of righteous to 45, and God agrees to spare the cities for that number. Abraham continues to bargain, going down to 40, then 30, then 20, And finally, just if ten were found, God's patience is so generous, I will not destroy it on account of the ten, God said, verse 18, verse 32. Contrast this Genesis 18 insight into the mind of God as it pertains to His determination, whether to judge a city or a nation, with the insight provided from Haggai, chapter 1. In Genesis 18, God's enactment of judgment is not enacted, if there are just a few faithful in a city or a nation, if there are just a few faithful to him, he will not judge the whole. Whereas in the book of Haggai, God's judgment was enacted when the leaders who name his name were spiritually lethargic. What might Haggai say to the D.C. officeholders? Given this insight into God's way of thinking as it relates to his willingness to not pour out his judgment— it follows that Haggai would say to D.C. leaders today who name the name of Christ, My blessing on your nation is primarily determined by the faithfulness of my political leaders whom I have put into office. Genesis 18:28 28-33 reveals that God was willing to not judge Sodom and Gomorrah if only ten individuals were found there who were faithful to him. America has millions of faithful and committed Christians, so the number of faithful believers in a nation is not the determining factor relative to God invoking His wrath on a nation. It only takes a few to ward off His judgment. It stands to reason the often-cited cliché, if God doesn't judge America today, He will owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology, is erroneous. Again, this insight into the mind of God is beyond value to believers in office relative to this matter. Bottom line, the book of Haggai indicates that it is vital for D.C. leaders who name the name of Christ to be passionate, active, and obedient to their special calling in the capital. The health of a nation is dependent on the faithfulness of believers in office. Such leads to God's blessings, something our nation is in dire need of. So here is the obvious application and takeaway from the book of Haggai. What are you doing in the capital to keep your heart kindled for Christ and His purposes? Has adversity caused you to lose heart? What are you doing while you are on the hill most every week that witnesses to and underscores that you are seeking first the kingdom of God? God is watching you, and the blessing or not of the nation is at stake. Obedient to Christ's leaders, influence the people and benefit the nation. God desires his called out ones to passionately love and obey him. The great extent to which he will go in order to accomplish this displays his great love. As mentioned in the introduction, the book of Haggai therefore parallels and serves to illustrate the principle found in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. How do you avoid his chastening discipline? Matthew six thirty-three provides the answer. It reads, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When the prophet Haggai, post-exile, brought this perspective up to those who had taken up the challenge to return to the capital city of Jerusalem and rebuild it, they responded appropriately. Chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. God's leaders and His people first looked inwardly at their own sin of materialism and selfishness, 1 verse 4, and repented. This poignant, sobering, short narrative of Haggai 1 serves to underscore and parallel the timeless truths of 2 Chronicles 7.14 and 1 Peter 4.17. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? A survey of this book would not be complete without mention of the second chapter. In addition to all that Haggai states that is related to the continuation of the Davidic line, he speaks about God's coming splendor, the future temple. This book also exclaims the glorious second coming of the Messiah. The rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem is only a foretaste of the coming millennial temple from which Christ will reign over the earth. That temple will far outshine Solomon's temple and the one Zerubbabel and Joshua were about to rebuild. According to Haggai 2, contains prefiguring, or what is known as eschatological telescoping, states chapter 2, verse 9 in this regard, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Haggai is motivating the remnant to be about rebuilding the temple by way of providing a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the coming millennial temple, wherein Christ will reign with all the saints as recorded, most specifically in the book of Revelation. His motivating words could be titled, Small Beginnings Can Lead to Great Things. To gain a more comprehensive understanding of temples throughout the Bible, note what is about to follow. Temples in the Bible. The Mobile Temple, Exodus 25-30. Solomon's Temple, 2 Samuel 7-29. Zerubbabel's Temple, Ezra 3-1-8. Herod's Rebuilt Temple, Matthew 24, verse 1. The Present Temple, 1 Corinthians six nineteen 19-20. The Antichrist Temple, Matthew 24, verse 15. The Millennial Temple, Zechariah 6, 12-13. And the Eternal Temple, Revelation 21, verse 22. In order to achieve a better understanding of the present temple relative, to the believer in the New Testament times in which we presently find ourselves living note 1 Corinthians 6:19 through 20 which reads or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god and that you are not your own for you have been bought with a price therefore glorify god in your body this passage has profound implications for those who name the name of christ This is a magnificent truth that should sober every true believer as to his divine calling and the urgency and necessity of fulfilling his mission, especially those at whom these Bible studies are aimed, those called to leadership of a nation. You are in leadership because God placed you here, cross-reference Ephesians 1, 3-14. It follows that he has expectations of you. Everyone who has been given much... Much will be required, states Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. It stands to reason that believers in office who fail to get this will often be removed by him. Psalm 75, 7 states, But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. How many times I've seen this in 24 years of ministry in capitals. Zerubbabel and Joshua had become irresponsible with their temple. How about you with yours? Application to governing authorities. As already noted, this book has profound implications for civil leaders who name the name of Christ. It is a sobering, hugely insightful, godly perspective on why a nation declines. Cross reference Second Corinthians seven fourteen, first Peter four verse seventeen. Do not miss this. It places the demise of a country squarely on the shoulders of the followers of Yahweh, those whom he has placed in leadership. Notice the following additional passages from an agrarian-based culture that so depict and parallel America's enormous problems today, Haggai two sixteen through 17 and 19a. From that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only ten. And when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would be only twenty. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. God blamed the civil and spiritual leaders of Judah for the country's economic woes and overall decline. Most specifically, it was not the overall populace of the nation that he initially blamed. The responsibility was laid first on the shoulders of God's civil and spiritual leaders. They who were not seeking first the kingdom of God, but rather seeking first the God of self-interest. Cross-reference 1 verse 4. Today God is watching you. 2 Corinthians 16, verse 9. Will your heart ever shift to using your position and power, not for the betterment of the nation, but for personal gain? Has it already? It is a subtle and privately kept temptation. You know what I mean. War against that at all times. Herein, I believe, is the tightest application of this book to your life. The sidebar is, you had the guts to take risk. Do the uncomfortable thing and run for office, leave home, and better your nation when many others chose to stay back. But now that you're here, the circumstances can prove to be discouraging. Do you continually prioritize God, or do you give in and internally decide to panel your own house? Your private surrender, or not, determines the course of a nation. As Haggai sees it, the solution to a nation's woes is not political. It is first spiritual. That's what's most important to God. That's what triggers his transcendent blessing or not on a nation. Your faithfulness to continue or not to serve him now that you are in D.C. is the real determining factor as to whether he blesses or disciplines the nation. Do not miss this truth. How committed to Christ are you in your heart of hearts? How are you manifesting those commitments? Do you prioritize your church when in the district? Do you prioritize the body of Christ when in the capital? Do you instruct your scheduler to block your appointment calendar in order to participate in Bible studies that honor Him, where the Word of God is consistently taught and there is a full-throated exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ? Those are just basics, a starting point, par for the course. Will you be like Zerubbabel who, when confronted, obeyed the voice of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 12? Haggai would say that that is the biggest issue in the nation. This concludes our Bible study for this week. May God bless you deeply. Thank you at this time for all you do in our great country and on the hill. This is Frank Sontag.